0: As we get started this morning, I thought we just would start right away with a word of prayer before we dive into our time together this morning. So let's just bow here in prayer. Father, thank you so much that we're already have been able to be in your word as families, to, to be able to memorize scripture together as a camp, and to be able to sing these glorious praises. Father, as you are working in our lives, I pray that you would help us to be more like you, more holy as you are holy, as we've just declared. So, Father, now as we come to your word, we want to come doing that with humility and faith, and I pray that you would just grant us understanding of your word, that you would work in our lives. Thank you that you are here with us, and it's in Jesus, your son's holy name, we pray all these things. Amen. I've already shared with you that, that I am no good with tools. You know that I can hardly hang up a picture. So you can imagine that it's kind of overwhelming when it comes time to assemble furniture. Things never go well. I've never assembled anything from Ikea, thankfully. We've avoided that. But I remember one time we got a dresser for my daughter from Target, and I was able to put it all together, but at the end it didn't quite look the way that it was supposed to. I mean, some of the drawers are kind of wonky, And already like four or five years later, we're like, okay, it's time to get rid of this dresser because it just doesn't really, you can't really open the drawers. She can't even open up one of the drawers to access her pajamas. It's just like this, yanking and pulling. So Target can promise and guarantee all they want that they're gonna have all the instructions and even all the tools and all the little screws and all of that was provided. But what Target can't guarantee me is that I will have the skills to actually accomplish what they have given me to do, but that is not what it's like with these tools that, that God has given us that we're talking about. We're talking about God's Son, who is sufficient for life, and we're talking about God's Word, which is sufficient for life. We're talking about God's process of sanctification today and how that is sufficient for life, and tomorrow we'll talk about God's program, the church, and how that is sufficient for our life. When God says that he's given us these things, he doesn't just say, yep, I guarantee it, but yet we're still kind of somewhat left on our own and things might not turn out exactly right. No, none of us here can ever say we don't have the tools that we need to get through what we're going through because God will strengthen us and provide not just the tools but the know-how and the ability to be able to apply these things to our life. And we've been saying from 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given us everything required for life and godliness. Why don't we say that all together, but instead of us, replace that with the word me. Okay, let's all say that together. God has given me everything required for life and godliness. And don't forget it. Whenever you feel like you're overwhelmed and you can't do it, you can say that. That's right out of scripture. God has given me everything Absolutely everything from the tools, from the skills, to the know-how, to the help, the call line that you might need, everything that you would need to be able to properly assemble whatever it is God is calling you to do, He's provided it. He's given it to you. So today we're going to talk about sanctification, the sufficiency of God's process. One of the most essential elements to being equipped with everything required is the process of progressive sanctification. Now when you hear the word sanctification, what comes to your mind? When I say sanctification, what things come to your mind? Camp. What's that? Cabinet. Oh, a cabin at camp. Yes. Is anybody staying in sanctification? No. Who else? Cleanliness. Cleanliness? What's that? Growth? Yep, good. Discipline, growing in Christ-likeness, growing in Christlikeness. Difficulty. difficulty, process, Holding set apart, set apart. Holiness. holiness. Awesome. It sounds like you all have a great grasp on this, so we'll just pray and we'll just be dismissed. You guys are... No, but that's, that's wonderful. It is all, It is the process that God has chosen to develop within you and me, the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we all wish that this could just be an instant process, right, that, that we could have a fairy godmother that would just come and just wave her magic wand over you, and we could be like Cinderella and transformed instantly without that midnight expiration, of course. We want instant transformation. Now, none of us can choose, though, what path that God has given us to do, and often we don't like the path that God has chosen for us to be able to grow, to be more like Christ. We all wish it could be kind of like just riding that cart, that ski lift to the top of the mountain. It's just easy, it's slow, there's a beautiful view, but more often than not, it's more like those switchbacks that you have to do on the mountain to get to the top when you're hiking. But sanctification is a process. Now, there is an aspect to sanctification that when you are saved... You are set apart, you are holy, you are sanctified. That was declared at the same time that you were justified when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are made holy, you're set apart for something special. But what we're talking about is that God is not done with you. He doesn't just pick you up and put you on the top of the mountain. It's as good as if you're already at the top of the mountain but God says now practically speaking, it's time to work in your life. And that is progressive sanctification, that day-to-day uh, working in your life to make you more like Jesus in every part of your life. But if I'm going to be honest with you, this is my time for confession, there have been times in my life where I was thinking about my own spiritual growth and what the process God had given me, and I stopped and I thought, this can't be right because it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. God, there's got to be a better way to make me more like Jesus. Why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so difficult? Why is it that I just don't get it sometimes? It must be because you're wrong and I have got a better way. Sometimes it's exhausting, it seems inefficient, it seems lacking, but we cannot trust in our perception of God's process because God's process of sanctification really is sufficient. It's a powerful tool wielded not in the hand of an incapable, unpredictable, impulsive worker, but it's in the hand of a powerful, loving, tender God and Father. And God is working in you in his best way and process. So let's trust God's process, not our own perception of what that process looks like. Maybe you've seen signs like this before, and if you've got one of these signs hanging up in your house, don't be offended by what I'm about to say, okay? But it's, it's some, I've heard it said that if you want people to know that you are really struggling in life, hang this sign up in your house because it's that mantra of just trying to convince yourself, I am enough, I am enough, I am enough. Oh yes, things are difficult, but I am enough. But really, that message is completely untrue. You will never be enough. Whether you feel like this empowers you or it gives you some kind of extra boost of energy, it's the, you're looking in the wrong place. You will never be enough. And that's the whole point of sanctification and salvation, that you and I need someone outside of ourselves to rescue us and to change us because you don't have what it takes to change on your own. It's like asking a monkey to change into a man. No matter how many millions or billions of years people think you can give him, he will never change because he doesn't have the ability to become something that he's not. Or if you go to a dead man and you just give him days, years, months, 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 however long, he is never going to come back to life because he doesn't have the ability to do that. Now, uh, I think it was about two years or so, it was time already to trade in our first minivan for our second minivan. And when we came to that part where it was gonna determine the value of our car, the dealer started asking me all sorts of questions. And I just started to get more and more embarrassed because my car was turning into a piece of junk. The, The windshield didn't work, I think the back windshield wiper was all wonky, uh, when you hit the lock button, one of the doors didn't actually lock. You couldn't hit an automatic button to make the door, one of the doors move. The seats were cracked. The air conditioning didn't work. It didn't have a, a DVD player. And there was just all of these different things. And it had become more of a liability than any type of asset. I had nothing of real value to offer. When we stand before God, it's just like that. We don't bring anything to the table. You're bringing, at best, a piece of junk car. But even that's still different because I still got something out of that. When we come before God, we bring absolutely nothing to the table. Turn with me to Colossians chapter one. And we're gonna kind of jump around at a couple different verses here that I'm gonna read before we get into that kind of chart that you've got that we can fill in. Talking about Assets and liabilities. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Jump over to chapter 2, starting in verse 2. It says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the strength of your faith in Christ. Jump down to verse 9. For in him the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. So when we first look at these passages, we start to see the liabilities of the sinner. We see in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, really, we didn't read verse 23, it says that we're guilty of sin and we're alienated from God, that because we fail to meet God's holy standards, we are sinners, and that doesn't make us lovely or beautiful, it makes us an enemy of God. We're not friends with God because of our sin, we're separated from him. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, we saw that we're foolish and we're blind because on our own, we just would rather go our own way, even if it means that we're just going to be walking off the cliff. And we're spiritually blind, which is so dangerous because when we are spiritually blind, we don't even know that we're blind most of the time. So therefore, we're just in so much danger. And then in verses 9 through 15, we saw that we're powerless and we're enslaved. We've already talked about that, like from Isaiah 6, that we're in chains and we're thrown into prison and we have no control over what we do or where we go. And so when you think about it, how could, from this biblical perspective, how could we ever think that we could bring anything of value to the table to help us start our relationship with Jesus, much less make ourselves to be more like Jesus as we grow. But thankfully, we have a strong Savior who brings nothing but assets to the table. Where we are guilty of sin, Jesus is our justifier. When you're justified, it's just as if you've never sinned because Jesus took all of your sin and he he bore those sins. He nailed them to the cross. But it's also just as if you've always obeyed because Jesus gives us his perfect record. While we're blind and foolish, Jesus is our wisdom. That's in verses 2 through 5. He is our wisdom. He is our spiritual sight. And that's, you know, that wisdom that, that Pastor David is talking about, the wisdom of God that we need to be able to play the game of life properly and how we are powerless and enslaved, Jesus is our power, he is our freedom. Again, Isaiah 61 would, would instruct all of that. So all of this to say that whatever we lack, which is, in, which is absolutely everything, Jesus doesn't just give it to us, he lavishes it upon us. So why would I spend so much time talking about these things? Well, I don't think I can improve on Paul David Tripp, so listen to what he says. He says, the Christian life is built on the foundation of accepting who you really are and believing who Christ truly is. Everything that you do will be shaped by the degree to which you believe and act upon the blessings that are yours in Christ. So you have to start with who you are and what Christ has done for you, and that really sets you on the path of spiritual life and spiritual growth. Now, we've been talking about Colossians 3 a lot with uh, the above perspective and, and being able to deal with things down below. So what is it that God is asking you to change? Again, we're not just trying to think of these concepts that are impersonal, but again, think back to what you wrote down in that box on Monday. That's, of course, a great place to start as we are thinking about this. But do you see God's hand at work in it? And we all need to start asking ourselves good questions that give us insight to what we're struggling with and, and what God wants us to do with that. But did you know that that's still not enough? We can't just stop with insightful questions. Often we get those, that great insight and we feel like, oh, I've just had this epiphany. And we feel like we've arrived, but that's still not enough because we have to do something with what God reveals to us. So... If we never move from what needs to change to what am I actually doing about it, you're never gonna see any progress in your spiritual growth. But your relationship with Jesus is gonna impact your life. Anybody who says that they are growing spiritually, but that they're not growing in any way of holiness, you're not seeing any fruit of holiness in their life, well then you're not really growing spiritually. Growth is gonna lead to life transformation. You're already in Colossians. Let's look at Colossians 3. We've, we've quoted it. We've fought a lot about this. But this is a really good passage, I think, to dwell on with sanctification. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, put to death whatever in you is worldly, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now you must put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his practices." And you have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. Now, that, those, uh, uh, those verses there tell us about seeking what's above, setting your mind on things that are above, and it all sounds so super spiritual. And sometimes it can almost seem like it's not really within our grasp to do those things. It seems kind of out of touch with reality, but I think it's actually quite the opposite. Because Paul is giving us the answer to how we can join into this, how we jump into this process of sanctification. Because look at verse 5 and verse 8, where Paul starts listing off sins that we can understand, things that we can we've experienced, we know all about them. In verse 5, what does Paul call all of this type of sin at the beginning of verse 5? What's that? Earthly or worldly is saying that you're, these things pertain to things on this earth that you're focused on things down below. And the truth is that often we love these things because we get what we want. They, they come out of us naturally and so they feel comfortable to us. And we won't want to attack these things that are worldly. So what does God actually call us to do about it here in this verse? What are we supposed to do with these things that are earthly or worldly? Kill them. But again, why would you want to kill something that feels comfortable and feels good? Even though you know it's wrong, we all know it's fun to be angry, and it's fun to be able to to indulge in things that make us feel good. But I really believe that attacking our sinfulness and our worldliness is never going to be possible if we don't first set our mind on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Why is that? What do we gain by setting our mind on things above? An above focus reminds you and me of the completed work of Jesus. Every time in scripture when you see Jesus seated, it's talking about how he's finished his work. It's the completion of his his work of the gospel. So we're reminded of his incarnation, that he took on flesh and he came to this earth and that he died and that he rose again, that he ascended back to heaven and that his present ministry is to stand before God as our defense. Armed with that gospel truth and perspective, you're armed and ready to attack the sin in your life because when our focus is on Christ and we see what we're empowered with with the gospel and we learn to love Jesus more, then it's gonna be a lot easier, not easy, but it's gonna be a lot easier to put to death the things that are down here on this earth. So we have to start with that upward perspective. When I grew up, we had an apple tree that was really fruitful in our backyard. And it was so fruitful that there was no way possible that my family of five was going to be able to eat all of these apples. And so we would just fill up bag after bag of those brown paper bags that you get at the grocery store, and we would just start giving them out. But if that tree would have stopped being fruitful and the apples would have come out mealy and rotten and gross, you know, we could have just cut them all off and tied up beautiful red apples all over the tree. And then picked them and put them in the bags and gave them away. So we kept our reputation of the, the famous palma apples. But that wouldn't have changed anything. That wouldn't have made the tree fruitful. It might, made, it might have covered up the ugliness for a little bit. But just like how Pastor David talked yesterday about the importance of the heart, that is exactly what happens when we are trying to change ourselves just by rearranging our behavior. We're doing nothing uh, less than just ripping off rotten apples and putting beautiful fruit in its place that you didn't bear, but that you bought or manufactured in some other way. The key to lasting change is heart transformation, and the formula of faith and repentance rescues us from falling into that trap. So the relationship between faith and repentance is so important to our sanctification, and they have to work really in sync. There's no way for us to be changed if we're not walking in faith and repentance. So faith is believing what God has said to be true and then responding with action. It's not just gaining information. That's part of it. You have to hear what God says. You have to believe what God says. But that belief has to have action. Like uh, yesterday, we, I took my two daughters on the zip line and you know that that thing is gonna catch you. You're not gonna plummet to your death, but you still have to step out and trust in it. And I was so concerned with my girls, making sure that they were gonna actually do it, and I said, I'll go when you go, that when, when Anya went the first time, I was like, oh no, I actually have to do this now too. And I just jumped and I did it, and you kind of brace yourself waiting for that catch. But I knew that I was fine. You have to step out, you believe that it was going to catch you, and you jump out, you respond with action. And that has to be paired with repentance, because when you are walking by faith, it's going to call you to do things that are uncomfortable. It's going to, it's going to cause you to have to change, to turn away from the sinful direction you're heading in the opposite direction. Repentance is changing your way of thinking so thoroughly, brought on by God's word, that it changes the way you behave. It changes the way you behave. So yes, behavior needs to change, but you can't start with rearranging your behavior. You have to start with what God says and allow that to uh, get down into your heart and, and push you out into that change. So together, faith and repentance, you're moved by what you believe to impact your behavior. Right living follows biblical thinking. Like in Luke 15 with the prodigal son, he recognized his own sinfulness and he repented. In Luke 15, 17, he comes to his senses. In verse 18, he admits his sin. And in verse 20, he gets up and he goes to his father. It's that full picture of faith and repentance. I know that we all believe a lot of truth. But we exchange that truth for a lie every single time we choose to sin or to go our own way. But that doesn't mean, so so whenever we are repenting, we have to go back to saying, okay God, even though this doesn't feel right, even though right now I don't feel this, I'm going to respond. Sometimes you don't feel saved, But you still need to just trust and say, okay, but I know what God's word says. It says that that if I have trusted in him, that I will be saved. And so you step out in faith and you trust him. Living with faith and repentance is actively participating in God's process of progressive sanctification Okay so when you are living with faith and repentance you're joining into that arena how God is working in your life you're 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 obeying him and but God is not going to be mocked all right God is going to deal with those who are refusing to repent in their life they might be walking the walk to some degree saying you believe all these things but if you're not really going to allow your heart to be transformed Through faith and repentance, God is going to deal swiftly with you. As Christians, we should know better than falling into this way or that. But knowing better is never enough to protect you from the dangers of sin. We're all capable of doing horrendous things. So falling into any kind of sin is not really unthinkable, and it's not a sign that you're not a Christian just because you're sinning. But what truly separates believers from unbelievers is repentance. Because those that aren't Christians cannot repent on their own. Repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you've not been gifted repentance, you can't really repent. So when someone is unrepentant, it's a pretty clear sign that someone is probably not saved. So it's not the sin that reveals that you're not a Christian. It is how you repent or don't repent. And that is why God has given us that all-important but uncomfortable truth of church discipline. Because God says we are not gonna allow people who are unrepentant, therefore most likely unsaved, to belong to a body of believers who are supposed to be set apart as holy. So when we deal with church discipline, you're removing that person if they refuse to repent after that whole Matthew 18 process, and therefore you're protecting the purity of the church. Look with me at at John 15, okay? We're going to be in John 15 here for a little bit, because whenever we talk about our response to God and participation in that process of sanctification, we can really be tempted that Christianity is all about doing, you know, if I just love harder if, or, I, or if I obey the rules better, if I toe the line, then everything is going to be okay. We might like to think that, that we can run up to God and say, see here, I've done all these things and that therefore makes me pleasing to God. I've contributed to my sanctification But what we need to realize is that transformation to look like Jesus and living a life that's pleasing to God is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. He is the the source of our spiritual life. He's the catalyst to our spiritual growth. So let's look here at John 15, verses 1 through 10. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And the Father has loved me and I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will, you will remain in my love, just as, I'll, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love." So what we see here is that sanctification demands an outside source. This concept of remaining or abiding in Jesus is all over the place in these verses. But in verse 4 and in verse 9, Jesus commands his disciples to remain in him. So it's not an option. So therefore, we should want to know what that means. Here, remaining in Jesus is a metaphor for staying in place, of staying connected to him. If a branch decides that it doesn't need the vine and that it can still go on thriving and bearing lots of fruit, well, that branch is misinformed because what's going to happen when he's cut off? He withers and he dies because he's not created to live independently. In verse 10, Jesus says that he remained in God's love through keeping his commands, keeping God's commands. So when we remain in Christ's love, we do that in the same way, by keeping his commands. That's how we're participating and showing that we're connected to Christ. So that does mean that there is some personal responsibility to contribute to your sanctification. Jesus provides the life-giving nutrition to our growth, we consume that spiritual food by obeying him, and then that produces fruit. So don't get confused. I'm not saying that it's all about you. If you're just saying, okay, everything is up to me, and I've got to do all these things, and that's how I gain acceptance and maintain relationship with God, that is wrong. But if we're saying, I need Jesus, because without him I can't bear fruit, and through his strength and by his grace I can obey and therefore bear fruit, that's what we're talking about. It's that connection to Christ. Just as we've been memorizing in Colossians 3, He our life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. So we have to stay connected to him for that power sanctification results in fruit this passage also tells us fruit is a sign of spiritual growth and health it's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation many of you this summer I'm sure planted gardens and when you planted a tomato plant you expected it to bear the fruit of the tomato if it didn't bear fruit of a tomato You went and you took care of it and you gave it more light and more water and more fertilizer. And if that still didn't work, well, then you say it's a lost cause, I suppose, and you pull it and you toss it. It was a waste. It's not going to bear fruit. Well, Jesus says here that you, as his children, have been chosen by God to be a growing, fruit-producing Christian. Verse 16 says that. He says, I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. And in verse 8, it says that you bear fruit and that is what brings glory to God. And when you don't bear fruit, God works in you just like you care for that tomato plant to make sure that you bear fruit. But Jesus also says that just like a dead branch that's withered and useless, it's pruned, it's cast into the fire, that those that really aren't Christians that aren't really connected to the vine and are showing that by their witheredness, they also are set aside. You can't produce fruit on your own. God expects your participation. Part of that, I don't think it's in the questions that you have later, but that would be another good question to ask. Practically speaking, what does that look like to remain in him? I think that I'll just get you started, that it does start with those those good things that pastors always tell you to do. Read your Bible, pray every day, go to church, because those things are gonna connect you to Christ. They're doors of opportunity to walk through to be like Jesus. So abiding or remaining in Christ, growing, changing into Christ's image involves more than doing. It must require faith and repentance. And at its core, it has to be connected to Jesus in relationship. So, how do we connect the sufficiency of sanctification to your life and to those situations that you have written in that box? Hopefully those discussion times are beneficial to you and you'll get to do that, but just to get us started. First, you need to accept who you are and believe who Christ is. That's that liability and assets. Because success in spiritual transformation is based on the degree to which you believe and act upon those two things. Remember, you have nothing to contribute. You need Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you do not have Jesus, then this, you're not on this process. This is not a tool that you can use. But it's still, I want to invite you to join in with this process. It's not always fun. But it is good and God is working in us. And we could go all around and share those testimonies of how God has used these things in our life to transform us. But to join that path, you have to acknowledge that you are that sinner, that you have nothing but liabilities and believe that Jesus has nothing but assets to bring because he went to the cross and died for us. And when you place your faith and your trust in Christ alone, you will be saved. You'll be on that track of faith and repentance. Second, are you craving more than God's process of progressive sanctification? Because if you are, then you're never going to grow. You have to submit to God's process. So often, or maybe there's times that you feel like you're one of those Disney princesses. You know that moment in the movie where they're just singing their heart out and they're longing for something greater out there. You know, something out there is gonna radically transform their lives. Whether it's some kind of magic or a prince or whatever it is, that adventure is going to transform them. But that's not really reality. Everything out there is not sufficient to change you. You need Jesus alone. Third, you can't attack what's below until you focus on what's above. So dealing with your own sinfulness and worldliness isn't possible without a focus on Jesus. Jesus has to be your focus. Jesus became a man for you. He died on the cross for you. He rose again for you. He sits at the right hand of God, having completed his work as that perfect, sympathetic high priest for you. Having that knowledge with our focus on Christ and the fullness of the gospel is gonna help you grow and to put to death whatever in you is worldly. Fourth, whatever faulty beliefs are ensnaring you in the vicious cycle of sin and temptation, or what are those faults? What is tripping you up? What do you need to address? What do you need to grow in your faith in? What do you need to repent of? Because eventually you have to put off and you have to put something on, faith and repentance. And lastly, are your efforts to contribute towards your progressive sanctification rooted in the true vine i'm not asking if you're what you're doing but i'm saying is what you're doing rooted in jesus because if not then it's not going to be beneficial you're just taking off the rotten apples and putting on the beautiful apples in its place the adventure of new life in christ begins when the comfortable patterns of the old life are left behind I read about a, a, a man who, who um, pointed out that so many people want to go out and seek new adventures in life and they, or they want to go out and they want to experience nature. Now, I'm not attacking those of you that that have RVs or really nice campers or anything like that, but I thought it was kind of funny how this man said, we want to go out and we want to experience nature, but yet we refuse to leave all of our comforts behind, so we buy RVs that have flushing toilets and running water and satellite dishes, and you go and you park your RV on a concrete pad surrounded by a couple evergreen trees, and you think, ah, this is nature. I've changed, you know, I've, yes, you've changed your setting to some degree, but yet you've still brought all of your old comforts with you. So nothing really changes. The adventure of new life in Christ begins when the comfortable patterns of our old life are left behind, putting to death those things that are on earth setting our mind on things that are above, that's where the real transformation is, and that's where the adventure of new life in Christ begins. God has given us everything required for life and godliness. And one of the most important tools that God has given us is the tool of sanctification. So you can put that in your tool belt so that you can use it and you can look more like Jesus. Let's bow here in prayer. Let me me pray for you. Father, this process of sanctification is not easy. And there's times that it just feels like something is wrong. Something can't be right with this process. There's got to be a better way than a roundabout, back and forth, switchback paths up the mountain. But Father, we don't want less than what you have planned we acknowledge that your ways are better. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus, who gives us new life. Father, I pray for each one in this room as they are struggling and thinking through how to connect Jesus and God's word and this new idea of this that we've talked about today, this sanctification process, how they're trying to connect that to that situation. I pray that you would help them, help them to take real steps and that they would be able to begin that adventure of of living for Christ. Help us today to recognize what's tripping us up, what we need to put off, what we need to put on. Make us to be more holy, more set apart, more sanctified like Jesus. And may we do it relying completely on Jesus and not ourselves. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.